do continue in the series of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Genesis 37? We'll start there together today. The title of it is, When God Shows Up During the Death of a Vision. When God shows up in the midst of a time that it looks like God, your God-given vision is, gonna, is impossible to happen. The death of a vision. As you're getting to that, I'm going to tell you, I am a dreamer. I think I would say more of a vision. I'm driven by vision. It doesn't matter really where the vision comes from. I've talked to businessmen and women. They'll sit down and share with me what God has placed on their heart for business, and I hear their vision, and I need you to know I'm behind it already because the vision draws me. I love the concept. Vicki and I have been a part of establishing a few churches, and I love the part that when God gives a clear vision for what he wants that particular church to do, to be, what character, what part in the body of Christ were they to play. And I love to gather a group of people around that vision who have a similar heart, have a similar passion. They want to see the same kind of things happen. And I love those early days, kind of like Hamlin on Wednesday night when we were back in the old building. We spent that, those Wednesday nights together on training to be spiritual warriors. I love the time of gathering together, sharing a vision, and seeing people start adding their gifts, their God-given gifts to make that vision happen. That motivates me. I kind of live there. And that, if you want to know what my heart is, that's what it looks like. But I've been doing it long enough to let you know now that there are seasons when that vision comes up against a mountain or it appears to have run into something that kills it and it almost senses like it's, it's dead. It's hopeless. And what do we do? I'm telling you, I can remember back over the years when that death of the vision hit in a ministry. We would be at our home sometimes. We would be in some meeting somewhere. where We're on our face crying before the Lord, saying, Lord, you called us to this. But there is, we don't see any way forward. We don't see any way out. And I loathe that time, may I tell you. I just hate it. I hate the time when it feels like it's dying. But I will tell you that now from an old guy perspective that it's in those times, and you're going to find out today, that you are to hold on to the promises that God has given you. Especially in the days when it appears that it is dead and there seems to be no way out and there is no hope from your perspective forward, you hold on to what God has told you to do. You met Frazier and Christina Armstrong last Sunday and, the, and our personnel team has invited them to join our church in the position of student minister and assistant worship. And they have said yes, that they feel like God's calling. And, I, and in the midst of that, I've been talking with Frazier off and on for the last couple of weeks. And I said, here's the deal, Frazier. We'd love to have you. We feel like you're the, you have what we need. You have this God-given gifts in the right places. But I'm going to tell you this. You get before God, and you need to find out 
that this is yes on your heart from God, not from your perspective or our perspective. You've got to know that this is God's hand. And like Vicky and I, there is no question in our minds that the Lord brought us here for such a time as this. I just, I know that. So whether it's in a high time, a great time, a, a growing blessing, salvation numbers growing time, or if it's in a time when it hits a wall and we don't know how to go forward, I know that I know God's hand and his word says, you do this. I said, Frazier, you've got to know that. Why? Because there will come the day when you face this situation that it looks like it's dead. I don't even know when, I don't know how, but I know there is a biblical principle that if there is a seed or a vision, that it will go through a process of death because it has to be buried. Remember, if you have a seed, it has to go into the ground and watch Jesus said, the scripture says, and it has to die. And out of that death comes new life. And it is then only the resurrection power of Christ flowing through all of our lives. See, that is a principle. And matter of fact, it says it in John 12, 24. Listen to it. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So that is the process. In the case of Joseph that we're looking at, you're going to see God planted in him the seed of dream. Remember the vision. God says he's going to raise him up and he's going to be over his family. Now that caused him a lot of trouble, but he had a vision from God. That seed was planted. But if you'll notice that that seed was then put to death. His brothers hated him and they threw him in a pit. Literally some of them were going to kill him. But except for Reuben, the oldest brother, talked him out of not killing him. And so they, instead of killing him, they threw him in the pit, literally into the ground to die. And if you'll jump ahead in the future, we're going to come back and look at, God raised him out of the death of the pit and put him in the position of overseeing so that God's plan was fulfilled through his life. The seed, the death of the vision, and then the resurrection of the vision. That's just a spiritual principle of that we must learn to live with. It's not, it's the vision side is easy, the death side is so hard. So, here are some ways that a death of a vision can occur. If you have your Bibles, let's look at 37, starting in verse 19. I'm reading out of the New King James today. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer, that's Joseph, he's coming Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say that some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams then. You know, you can hear the, the crass, sarcastic in there. We'll, we're going to kill that guy. Well, then he will see what kind of dream he has. But Reuben, and Mark Reuben, because I think you're going to see a character of Reuben, firstborn, who had a heart of a rescuer. Then Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. He saved him. And he said, let's not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Let's cast him into a pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. That he, and then Reuben then is telling him why of his motive. 
that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring them back to his father. Reuben said, throw him in the pit. But his plan was to come back later, get him out, and help him go back home. I love the heart of Reuben, that he is the heart of saving, of rescuing. I love to see that in him. So it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph had come to his brothers, they had stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic or the outer coat of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. They lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites, tell you about them, coming from Gilead and with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not lay our hand upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And then they took Joseph down to Egypt. Remember, Joseph was just a teenager at this time, probably 16 or 17 years of age. The youngest of the twelve of the other eleven brothers, uh, he was the firstborn of Jacob to his favorite wife Rachel. So get the picture here. Remember, Jacob had four wives: uh, Leah, Rachel, Bilhad, Dad, and I can't remember the other one right now. But he had four wives, and so they had these eleven or twelve total twelve sons from these ladies, and that's what. We have here, but Rachel, if you'll remember the story where his father worked for Laban for seven years so that he could get Rachel as his bride, and Laban deceived him, and after seven, he gave him Leah, his, his daughter Leah. So he stayed and worked another seven years to get Rachel. So there, you see there's some deceptions going on behind the scenes in these things, but God's will is still going to be done. But I want you to get the picture that Joseph is the firstborn of the favorite wife, and that's important for us to catch a hand on. Because Jacob took a coat, it says of many colors, part of the definition means also with long sleeves, which probably represented the tunic of the firstborn that was placed upon this son. And so he was not the firstborn of the family. Matter of fact, he was way down the list. But Jacob favored Rachel and put this coat on that, on that son. And so the rest of the brothers stood back and saw the favoritism of dad, and they got mad. They just began to get an anger in their heart. Somebody mistreated what they thought was right, and so they took on offense. And you can just begin to see that festering in the life of those brothers. The things that you see that causes this negativity, he was favored. He was given the blessing of the firstborn, which is a big deal for the Israelites. If you're the firstborn son, you get the double inheritance. You get the blessing of the father. You are responsible to carry on the name of the family. Um, and he was given dreams. And those dreams said to everybody around him, he thinks he's going to be better than all of us. But God was speaking clearly what he was going to do. 
you see you have the betrayal of those closest to you can be one of the things that kills, that tries to kill your vision. These folks were his family and they betrayed him. In your ministry, in your calling, you may have some people that are right with you at the very beginning, but over the period of time, they may turn. They may not like where you're going. They may turn against, and you may be betrayed by those closest to you. I'm telling you, that's the greatest hurt that Vicki and I have experienced in church planting. You know, you start out with that strong, strong vision group, and then you begin to see that peel off uh, a little at a time, and that's so painful to go through it. Here's the truth. Here's the truth that for you parents. I think I told you this last time. If you're a parent or a grandparent, do not do as Israel did here or Jacob. Don't do it. Where you have a favorite. Don't have a favorite child. Don't have a favorite grandchild. Because as you do that, it creates a great offense in the rest of the children. And it's our job. We, we really cannot let that be a part of our parenting. So you can be betrayed by those closest to you, or you might be even overtaken by an enemy. Do you remember he was sold as a slave to the opposition? What do I mean by opposition? If we go back four generations from the story we're looking at today, we get back to Abraham. And Abraham had made a grave mistake. Do you remember the story? God told him, Abraham, from your seed is going to come a nation that I have chosen and I'm going to use and bless. I'm going to bless you as a nation and then I want you to be a light to the rest of the world. I want the rest of the world that looks for idols and uh, gods and other things to serve. I, he said I, God had chosen them to be a light to the rest of the world that there is one true God. But in the midst of that, Abraham was old. Sarah, his wife, was old. Way beyond childbearing years, remember the story, and an angel of the Lord, or pre-incarnate Jesus, said to them, You're gonna, we're going to give you a son. And you remember they laughed. And they named him the name which means Laughter. Because that, they said, we're old, we can't have a kid. Now Abraham did what most men would, of us would do. When God is not working quick enough, we want to fix it on our own. I may be not talking about you, but I'm talking about me. We have a tendency to want to push God in his timing. So when Sarah wasn't pregnant immediately, Abraham started saying, well, I better help God out here. Because evidently he's not going to be able to make this happen. So if you'll remember he had relationships with a handmaiden of his wife. And a child was born. His name was Ishmael. In this story, guess who the 12 sons sold their brother to? The Ishmaelites. I will tell you this, it's a principle. Anything that we do. In our flesh, not driven by God, not in the timing of God, but in our own flesh. Whatever we do, I don't care how religious and spiritual it looks. If we're doing something in our flesh outside of the hand and the anointing and the timing of God, we will create an Ishmael. 
And what happens with an Ishmael is con- starts constantly working against the work of God. Do you hear that? You need to hear it. I need to hear that more than you. But you need to hear that. We need to make sure that the, we're functioning in the calling and the design of God so we're not creating something from our flesh. I always said it like this. If we create a ministry that is fleshly driven, it will have to be fleshly carried. And if you've ever carried a ministry, it'll kill you. Literally, you think I'm playing. No, it will kill you. So that we have to make sure what we do is the hand of God, the time of God, and the word of God. So that in the midst of that, it's the move of the spirit of God. So that it is not my will. Cannot be my will. And and let me tell you this. It's not even your will that matters. Do you get it? It is the will of God. So that must make us take pause at times when a great idea comes up. Because I've told you, when I hear a great idea, I'm right behind it usually. But sometimes a good idea will make us miss God's best plan. And we've got to be careful that it's not an Ishmael. So we can be overtaken by an enemy. That can make us lose our uh, vision dream. Or last, you can be sold into slavery. Remember where he was... Uh, where Joseph was taken, to Egypt. What is Egypt in Scripture? It's a picture of the world. It's the picture of bondage. It's the picture of slavery. So he was sent into a place of slavery. He was in Potiphar's house initially. He was bought by the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. So he's over prison and he's over other situations. He's brought into Potiphar's house, purchased by 20 shekels of silver, the very similar to what Jesus was sold for, betrayed for, 20 shekels. Saw that picture before. And in the midst of that, he was placed as the guard in Pharaoh. Potiphar purchased him. He went from a lowly slave to a short time. Because of his integrity, God raised him up, even in a place of slavery, to be in charge. They moved him from a slave to overseeing the entire household of Potiphar. And I want you to see this. God wants us to see that even though we may put ourselves in impossible situations, you're never out of that possibility and the move in the hand of God. Even if it's dark, even if it feels like there's no hope. Because there are people in our lives that we've given up on, haven't we, at times? They've gotten off so far, they've gotten broken so far that we kind of have to just give up. What I want to tell you is this, God is not, mess, not done messing with them. In the darkest place, he's there with them and he's wanting to pull them out of that place. The third way a death of a vision can occur is this, damaged by false accusations. Turn to 39, please. Let's read this. This is the false accusation I want you to hear about. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, as an Egyptian, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was, was with Joseph and he was a successful man. I want you to jump down to verse 6. Potiphar had left everything in, in the hand of Joseph. He did not know what he had accepted for the 
the bread which he ate. In other words, Potiphar had raised him up, trusted him completely. Now we get to see false accusations start happening. But he refused, verse 8, no, verse, uh, excuse me, go back up to the last of six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Ask most guys, that's how we would define ourselves. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what it is with me with the, in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her and to be with her. Temptation over and over and over. I'm going to tell you the story, the rest, you know it. But this, what happened is then this wife of Potiphar, when he on one particular day was trapped with her in a room and she was seducing him and he ran away and she grabbed his outer coat as, as he fled to get away from her. And so she used that coat and took it out to tell everybody, this man tried to rape me, false accusation. And it puts him in a place where at that point his vision is done. Do you understand the dream God put in his heart? If he's accused of this, of, of being in that situation, he, Potiphar came home, he was angry, he believed his wife, threw him in prison. He was there two years, hidden, unseen, and the whole plan of God seems to be done over in the death of the vision, planted in a dark cell. And while he was there, God's not finished, God began to develop in him a giftedness. He had the ability to hear dreams or see dreams and interpret those dreams. Remember, there was a baker put in jail with him. I just forgot. What was the other one? Cupbearer and the baker were put in the prison. And both of them, because the, the king was displeased, it just said he was displeased with them. And while they were in prison, they came, they had a dream on the same night, and they came to Joseph and said, what does this mean? And Joseph heard the dream, interpreted it to them, and it says in verse 39, verse 20, chapter 39, verse 20, the Lord was with him. He showed kindness and, and greatly favored in the eyes of the prison warden. So at that point, he's in time of, in charge of the dream. The cupbearer's dream, when he interpreted it, he says, you're going to be put back into your old position. When he got to the baker and he heard the baker's dream, he says, you're going to be killed in three days. So he gave positive and very difficult interpretations. And I want to say, while he was in this prison, I want to ask you, how many of you have ever felt you were hidden where you are? You're not where you think you should be because it feels like you're in a place you can't move. You can't use what God's put in your heart to do. You, you can't fulfill the dreams that were put in because you're in a place that's hard, a prison type thing. 
Have you ever found yourself wanting to do something or to be something significant in the kingdom, but you're stuck in some type of your prison? Has your time of inactivity tempted you to quit and to give up? I would say the answer has to be yes at some point where you just get tired of being in that place. But if you notice, God was not in a hurry here. He was not concerned. Two years in a prison, nothing had changed for him. The dream had not been hindered for him. It was still going to happen, but we don't see that because we're on this side of it. I think it was in the midst of this, even in this type of accusation, that God is saying to us, be patient where you are. The world may not see you. He says, I see you. I have you. You are going to fulfill the plan that I've designed for you. No one can stop what I have planned for you. He will say to us in the midst of the place where you are right now possibly, work on your integrity. Be found faithful in season and out of season. In the face of temptation, stand strong, flee, run. Whatever you have to do, stand faithful. Because he says, I'm developing a character within you that you're going to need when the time comes for me to call you out. Joseph's life, powerful message. He says, walk in integrity. And remember when the Potiphar's wife tempted him on a regular basis to be sexually unfaithful. He says, I will not do that. I have an integrity and I have an honor. I have a trust with your husband. I will not break those things. I would say this, trust God, not circumstances. In our human flesh, if you're like me, when it looks like somebody turned the switch off and there's no hope, I have a tendency, my flesh is immediately jumping to anger. And why, God? Where are you? My flesh is just prone to that. And I'm, I'm okay with us to throw that little flesh fit as long as we step right through it and say, but God, your word is true. My emotions are fluctuating. I am going to stand on what you have given to me as your word and be found faithful there. He's not forgotten you. Instead of getting mad and running at him, run toward him hard and get closer to the Lord. And it says, even in slavery, God prospered him. Raised him to the top. Everywhere he went, it seemed like the world and plans threw him to the ground. God continually raised him up until the time he put him in the spot of second in command in Egypt. We're going to look at that in a minute, uh, next week or two. When God shows up and everything's going right and you're in a place where you're tempted to have pride. We're going to look at that when we get there. Vicki, come on up please. I don't know how and I don't know why, but I do know that every time we meet, every time we talk through and teach through the Word of God, here's what I know. The Spirit of God is dealing with individuals in the church family. Sometimes that individual is the one speaking the words of the message. A lot of the times it is. But I do know this, that the word of God, when we do, even in the 
faltering way that I bring it is that even if we get that word of God out, it is a word that comes out in power and it comes out to direct, to correct, to redirect our steps, to bring us back to him. And I want to say to you today, what is it God's spoken to you today? He's given you a vision. You may be in a place where it's at a point of death. What do you do? If you've been mad, just go back and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Because I trust you. You're faithful. What is God saying to you today? What's he calling you to do? Some of us quit when it went into the death of the vision of time. I have had some times along my journey, often, where I wanted to quit. I just want to stop. Is it okay if I say that? It's true. Been mad at him. Turned away all that I thought I could. But I would say to you today, in being one that has run at times, run back. Run back home. If you stopped in the midst of your death of vision period, God has not changed. His callings are not taken away. We find that in another passage of Scripture. When He calls you, it's He's called you. So what do you do? Well, it's been a long time, Mark, since I failed that. And it's been a long time since I've just been a church attender. But I was called of God for significance. What do I tell you to do? Run back to Him. Just run back. I don't care if it's been a week, a day, or 20 years. It doesn't really matter. See, God's not limited to us. You get it? He's not limited to us. Our strengths don't impress Him. And our weaknesses don't hinder Him. His power is going to be accomplished if we just run back to Him. Some of you are in a prison. And usually it's a prison of unforgiveness. And it will stop you and it will keep you in jail until we learn the truth of the model prayer. Forgive us this day, Lord, just as we are forgiving those who've sinned against us. Don't be in a prison anymore. If you don't have to be, forgive. Lovely, loving, gracious, and I brag on you every week to somebody. As the greatest group of people I've ever been around. I mean it. But even in the midst of us, we're broken, aren't we? But we can do something about the prison of unforgiveness if you will just bring it today and lay it before the Lord and say, God, I'm not able to do this, but I'm going to ask you to release me from this so you can come out of your prison and start going after your calling because I don't care what's happened. Good, bad, ugly, small time, long time. My God is not limited. His arm is not short. His patience is not weak. His patience is not weak. Father, I just pray you would speak to our hearts right now as a church family. Lord, if there is a place within us that is hindering us, would you please reveal it right now? If there is an unforgiveness that I have harbored that has caused me, Lord, to be misplaced and out of place, 
not in line to do your call, Lord, give me the ability to forgive. And we have to confess, Lord, there are times we don't know how to do that. We don't know. We don't have the ability. But we're going to ask you to help us. If you're in that hidden place, your father's saying right now, son, I see you. Daughter, I got you. Don't worry. His time is perfect. His providence produces his provision. He will provide for what you need in the midst of your calling. Just say, Lord, what are you saying to me? Would you say that to him? Lord, what are you saying to me? Then would you say, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? And then I would say, just obey. We're going to open the altars. If you need to come and pray, if you'd like to come back to the Lord or come to the Lord for the first time, you don't know him, please come down here. Uh, you may think, well, what are all these people going to think? I'm weird. No, we're just going to know that you're walking a walk we've walked. And we're just coming. We would like to pray with you and celebrate your coming back to the Lord.